It's Monday the 21st of March 2022. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this past week, why it happened and why we should care. My guest this week is Eva Marin Klinsdottir, Professor in Public Policy and Governance at the University of Iceland. Welcome to you. Thank you. Um, Ukraine still understandably dominates the news this week, uh, but the reception of people into Iceland fleeing the war there has normalised somewhat. Among the latest news is that the Ukrainian refugees with pets will be allowed to travel to Iceland, which was not previously possible. The Red Cross is temporarily changing its most prominent Reykjavik charity shop into a place for refugees to pick up essential items of clothing. Beverest University is opening its accommodation up as short-term solution for the newest arrivals, and there's plenty more as well including questions around Iceland's consul in Belarus and his fish business, which we may or may not come to later on. Business leaders' salaries have been in the spotlight again as some of their millions of kroner in pay rises last year have drawn the ire of unions who refuse to accept claims that there is no room for pay rises for the rest of us this autumn, given the current economic uh, climate. The head of the Confederation of Employers points out, though, that the boss's pay has, despite some big individual raises, gone up proportionately less than other groups. In the natural world, the golden plover has arrived, among the plenty of other migratory birds, and yesterday it was indeed the spring equinox in Iceland and across the whole northern hemisphere. This weekend also marked one year since the start of the Fagradalsfjall volcanic eruption. The Justice Minister is proposing to reduce the number of sislumen, or district commissioners, from nine to just one. Two significant cases were thrown out this week. That is the district court verdict that police cannot question Stuntin journalist Avalstedt Kjartansson over alleged breach of personal privacy was quashed and the police can now carry on investigating. And West Iceland police dropped the case against the North West Iceland Electoral Supervision Committee following the region's disastrous count and recount in September's Althingi election. Former MP Karl Gauti Hjaltason says he will now appeal that to the state prosecutor. And finally, talking of voting, election season is now well and truly underway once again. This time it's the local elections in May, an event which many new Icelanders, ineligible last autumn, can this time participate in fully. So, where would you like to begin? Well, I didn't, I didn't realise there was so much happening the last week. It's actually quite, quite an eventful um week but of course the uh, ukraine situation is is what we are at the moment um most occupied with mm-hmm. and even though it's happening you know relatively far away from us it's still affecting us on a daily basis and like you said we have a, we're having a relatively large number of people coming into iceland fleeing from the war Although, as you say, it has normalised somewhat, it may still continue to to increase. And in such a small country as ours, um, hundred people and hundred people for for weeks and weeks, that will of course put some strains on our system. Mm-hmm. And what I find most interesting when I've been when I'm sort of watching this is that they are trying to so sort of be more coherent in their um, approach to migration than we have before. For example, when we've had um, few, usually quota fugitives coming into Iceland, um, local, munip- local communities or municipalities have sort of um, opted to to um, take, take these people into their um, municipality and give them services. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> 
and our system has been somewhat different than from what what is the standard in the other Nordic countries because well practically some municipalities have have sort of been able to opt out on this so we don't have a we don't really have a coherent approach to migrants in Iceland so in some areas we have a lot of them some of them have come here as as uh, to work others are fugitives and then Re- we refugees. have refugees sorry mm. um and then in other and in other um areas we have practically none you know it's practically no and no that's a little bit weird because iceland isn't um a, a what do you call it a, a federation that there isn't much autonomy for the municipalities so it's strange that they have so much autonomy in this way maybe yes well when you say they don't have autonomy is Yes and no. They don't have. They're not a state, you know. And but still, they have quite a lot of autonomy in choosing um, tasks that are not uh, legally binding. So basically, if the parliament hasn't set a legal obligation for the municipalities mm-hmm. to do something, they are able to say simply not do it. And we have not gone, as far as I'm aware of, we have not gone the way of sort of setting up a legal base in Parliament saying that we are all responsible and that we all have to do this and that. So we don't, we don't really have a very coherent system mm-hmm. at the moment when it comes to migrants. And you get the impression that's changing now because of the Ukraine crisis. I, I, yeah, that's that's sort of my feeling when they're talking because they are talking about coherence and sort of coordination between very different um arms of the, of the government which i haven't seen before so if this happens it's going to be very different from what, what we have experienced before and do you foresee a future where this could be permanent long after the war finishes i think so yes i think so i think i think it's because um we are actually in a spot where we have to start doing something but usually it is the case that we don't really do often we are we are not very proactive you know we are reactive we we react when something happens and now there is a push to our system and we have to coordinate and then we'll coordinate mm-hmm. and i don't think we are going to de-coordinate afterwards you know we're not going to step back and and discontinue this I, i don't think so okay um move slightly on um because this influx of new refugees coincides with obviously very difficult economic times for the world but also a period of uh, change on the employment market in Iceland there's some talk of how Ukrainian refugees could fill some of this gap in a positive way um, certainly in the tourism sector and others is that something that people are even thinking about yet because it's so early on and, and would would they want to do this given the circumstances that they're coming from I I think I think this is a long term um thinking because we don't really know how long this situation is going to go on um we haven't really had this type of situation that close you know in Europe we had the um the Balkan yeah the Balkan war um that was 20 between 20 and 30 years ago and Iceland wasn't really affected by that and we had some refugees coming but it wasn't in large numbers and and this is a totally different situation it's somehow much more uh, pressing to our system um but i 
I remember for because I I lived um, in Central Europe during the during the Balkan War, and what I remember is that there was first of all these large influx of people, the countries that were having them coming in, they needed to integrate them. Some of them were able to get a job. Some of them went back home. But in some cases, it took years. Mm-hmm. And many, many years later, um, they were still they still had, for example, unaccompanied children, which were stationed in the countries, and they had to decide, what are we going to do about these teenagers? Are we going to let them stay in the host country? Are we going to send them back home to the to the country where the, the war is not going on anymore um so i i think i think we have we've had some ukrainians coming to iceland be, before the war to work here and i think from that perspective it'd be fairly easy to integrate them into our system but it means a totally different thing right now they're talking about setting up online schooling for example for ukrainian children Um, we haven't really gone that far. Are we going to integrate them into our system? Are we going to take a large influx? I mean, at some point, we're going to have to do it. If they stay here for years, this online thing cannot go. I mean, it can be supportive, but it can't be... That's actually um, a really interesting point. Yeah. Um, because obviously the emphasis in the refugee crisis is mostly on women and children, mothers yes. and children. Yes. And most of them come to Iceland and other countries hoping to stay for not very long. Exactly. But they might do. They might. Where do you emphasize? what emphasis do you put on the children's education? Are we treating them as a, as though they're just on a small break from Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Or it's a fascinating point. Exactly. And at the moment, I think I think it's a good idea to think, okay, this is a small break. Um, but as as long as, as, as this lingers on, longer we will we'll also see the development of the war and we will be able to predict perhaps uh, predict it a little bit better right now we are not it's very difficult to say it's going to be over in three months you know and even though say Russia wins or the Ukrainians win we don't know the situation and like in Mariupol the city of Mariupol is is completely devastated. So peace I mean, could come, but people can't yeah, go back. People can't go back to go tomorrow. To. You know, there's no house. There is nothing there. There's no infrastructure. So, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, even though peace would come today, these people are not going to go home until after months. Um, but like I said, it, it's going to be interesting to see because like right now we are sort of in, you know, trying to save a leaky boat, <laughs> you know, sort of trying. But we haven't really started to say, okay, how are we going to keep this boat afloat for, for the next five years? And what are we going to do with all these people? Mm. And obviously they themselves have a huge say in that, hopefully, yeah. of, of what of happens. Yeah, And and I think we, we're going to have to face that although many of them want to go home and back to their homeland and many of them will, there, some of them will stay. Some of them are going to stay here and their husbands are going to come if they survive the war. Mm. And we so, do see that. I mean, you mentioned yeah. the, 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 the Balkan War. There's people in society, quite quite a sizable chunk of the immigrant community are from back then. We've got Iraqis in the country, lots of Afghans for the same reasons. Exactly. And they're contributing to society and, and living their lives. And that's wonderful. Yes. On that note, maybe we should move on to a different topic. Anything else that stood out for you particularly? Well, we've had a, we've just celebrated the year of the uh, of the volcano, 
um, eruption. Um, it was nineteenth uh, of March. It was about yeah. nine thirty in the evening. I yeah, remember it was it something well. like that. It was in the, and then it was sort of like the lit up the sky, and it was fascinating photos. And I, luckily, it didn't really hurt our infrastructure, or and it was very visitors friendly, and it gave us something to think about other than COVID at at the time. Um, but I found. I was reading an interview with a geologist and I thought, oh, my God, because he was sort of like saying, oh, this is just the opening act, you know, just wait for it. Because that's what they're thinking, you know, they're thinking that we are coming into an eruption um, period. So we're going to see a lot of eruptions um, in the time span of 100 years. But still, in our lifetime, we could actually experience it again Mm. several times even. I Which remember I found fascinating. There was an episode of uh, Quakerud before the eruption started talking about the possible things that were going to happen yes, on Reykjanes. Yes, yes. And one of them was needing to get a ferry to the airport because mm. <laughs> and these things could very much happen. It, it could actually because it's it's a peninsula, you know, it's it's just a one-way streak basically. Mm. And so there are two roads down there and they were actually worried at some point that one of the roads was going to um, be destroyed so you couldn't use it then it's just one left and there's electricity there's our international airport you know it's a very very important hub Mm. and it's going to be it's quite a challenge to think about that we we have to I think we have to think about our infrastructure in this area and make sure that for example um, communications, electricity is not just the one way it's just in one area so if, if we're unlucky and we have an eruption close to that place then we'll lose what? Electricity? There's there's not going to be any electricity at the airport mm. you know, it's um, the practical thinking Yeah, Southerness is, is lucky in a way that it's got, it's, it's relatively independent when it comes to energy Um they're, yes, they're on yes. a different hot water network to us. Yeah, they've got their own two power stations. Um, yeah, but they still need. I think they're still um, they need electricity. Yeah, well, it's all part of the same national grid, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's not like they're getting their their hot water from Hetlishedi like we do in the no, city. No, they've got no, their own source their, there. Yeah, and, they have their own sources of heating, so that's that's actually quite practical. But <laughs> you know, worst case scenario, they could end up as being completely cut off for some time, you know, like we saw in uh, Las Palmas, I think, where the island was basically cut into two halves, where, you know, the lava flow is just cutting the island in two, and it's extremely difficult to get from one area to another. Mm. Um, If they came to a circumstance like that, if there was a communications breakdown, for example, um, because Reykjavik has so much communication with Keflavik Airport and the NATO base there, for example, I mean, you can't imagine a, a if the internet connection was cut between there and the road, because all the emergency services and hospitals here, mm. they would have to transfer international flights to Akureyri. I imagine they couldn't just carry on with a ferry connection. This is uh, all very hypothetical. I, I mean, it's it's of course we are sort of like thinking way way ahead, but it's it's actually quite interesting. You know, what what are we going to do? Are we going to put all international flights to Cap- to Akureyri. That's quite far away. Mm. There are very different, you know, during the winter time, it's, uh, you know, communica- connections are quite difficult. Road connections can be quite challenging. Um, so I think that could be 
that could be quite difficult. And perhaps this could be an extra push on because they have been talking about uh, a New England airport because it's constant talk about that we should move the Reykjavik airport, the, the city airport, to somewhere else outside the city area. Um, and this could actually be one of the one of the one of the reasons why we should do that. Although some people would like to just move the inland connections to the to Kaplavik Airport, mm. but of course that would not you know be a solution to our problems in case of an eruption in this area. And that's a whole different kettle of fish. I mean, yeah, 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 most of the people calling for that option are people that live in the city. They're not people that live in Akureyri, Eilsfjord, no. Ysavid. No, exactly. um, so I know it's a, not something I mentioned at the start of the show, but this is interesting. Nice Air, the, the new North Iceland mm. airline that's supposed to start flights in, in June, has now started selling tickets as of this week. Um and that's it. They they wouldn't. They obviously wouldn't want all international flights to move to Akureyri. That would get rid of their uh, their unique selling point. But that's interesting for uh, the North Iceland economy. And we were talking about the economy and tourism briefly as well. Um, what do you make of that? I think it's. Um, I think it's great. I mean, if it works, it's it's going to be fantastic because it's one of the problems that we've had with tourism is that we've had these, especially people who come for a very short time for a weekend or something. And they, of course, they, they can't go to Akureyri. It's too far. Mm. So they tend to stay and, you know, maybe 200 kilometre, you know, span from the city. Um, so this, of course, gives, uh, you know, promises. it's good for the hotel business, it's good for restaurants, it's good for other services. Um, and it also provides, because not only Akureyri and its uh, immediate surrounding, because it also has uh, sort of um, a push towards the east, for example, to, to the east of Iceland, because especially during summer times, when perhaps when the roads are not so difficult, it's fairly easy to just go to Eilstad or, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, we, of course, I think what I, the promise, the, the um, possibilities I see is that it will give um, this this uh, part of the country will give it a possibility to sort of be independent from the Keplerwick Airport and the influx of people from the Keplerwick Airport to have their own special. So people come to Akureyri and they visit there, but they don't go to the Golden Waterfall or the Blue Lagoon. Mm-hmm. You know, they they stay in the in the north with all of its very. Uh, prominent attractions all of its own. Exactly. Um, they're not only thinking about tourists, though. I can tell, basically, because their their initial uh, destinations are, I think it's London, Copenhagen, mm. as to be expected. Plus, also, I think it's Alicante, is it? Or Tenerife? Yeah, Tenerife. Yeah. Tene. Well, that's, so this is not about tourists <laughs> that's coming. That's export. Exactly. <laughs> that's export. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's another side of the same coin. People, it's so far to drive to from mm. Eilstad and Akureyri to Keplavik. Well, of course, if you think about it from the perspective that you want to make some place um, habitable, you want to make it a good place to live in. Um, services like these, having a charter flight to to Alicante or you know to Spain to the into the summer, mm. it is of course um, a variable that when you're choosing when young people are choosing the place to live, this is definitely a variable in that. You know how easy is it? to get abroad because usually when you come from these 
this area, you have to add one day extra before you go and then one day extra after you come home. And it's... And then there's some uncertainty about maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't. Exactly. Especially in the winter. Especially in the winter. So I think this is also... Um, basically, it all, uh, it all works together because it strengthens the, uh, the population base. It strengthens the... Um, willingness of people who want to live there mm -hmm. and that also helps because it makes the services for those who come in there makes it more robust and better so it, it it's all connected you know it works together just briefly before we move on um iceland express way back in the days mm. they had flights to both yeah. akureyri and also eilstadis mm -hmm. uh that didn't last that long i wonder what's different now I'm not so sure. I, I, this is not my area of expertise, you know, how to calculate the flight um, business. <laughs> but of course, um, what has changed, one of, one of the variables that have changed is that we are, we're having a lot more tourists coming into the country than we had um, before. So um, if things come back to more or less to what they were before the before the um COVID situation, then um, the base of people coming in to sort of support the airline, because obviously you cannot found an airline that is only based on flying people from this place of Iceland to Tenerife and back. Mm -hmm. But you you can actually offer this service if you have other services that are lucrative. So you can have this on the side. You can It works if you have full planes back and forth. But you can't have... I, I can't imagine having an airline that is only about this. But so, together, it will more, will work because then when you have less tourists, then you can concentrate on the Icelandic people who are going into the sun mm -hmm. and then you have um, so the two, tourists. Two-way traffic. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe also the, the airline itself isn't so focused on its own profit because it's owned by entirely mm -hmm. owned by tourism players in North Iceland who are yeah. looking to get other benefits from mm -hmm. the people, not just from the flight tickets. Um, okay, did you want to talk briefly about the local elections coming up? Uh, yeah, yeah, we can mention it. It's I believe it's that's sort of, sort of more in, in quite in your area of expertise, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Um, well, know, there is some. Um, we have we had some. Um, Uh, election tryouts this weekend where people are being chosen for the leading positions, especially in the Independence Party. Um, not all of the parties are, are choosing their leaders like that, but they've had some in, in the city of Reykjavik. And what I found interesting is that it looks like the Independence Party um, in the largest um, municipalities, they're being led by women. Um There are, I think there are three women and they're all in the Hapnefirdokopur and Reykjavik, which are the largest municipalities, which is um, quite a change from what we've seen previously because we could argue that um, the Independence Party has maybe been the sort of slowest to sort of put women in, in leading positions um, at the local level, at least. So this is quite... Um, quite a change in, in their, um, say, um, leader and leaderships, what, what were visible, what's visible. And has, um, has the process of changing their local leadership, the process has changed as well, hasn't it? Uh, not really. I don't, I don't think it has changed that because they don't have quotas. Some of the, some of the parties have quotas. So basically, 
they say, well, if you have women here, you must have a man there and vice versa. Um, as far as I know, the Independence Party hasn't introduced that. I hope I'm not... Um, they haven't... I don't, that would be a very recent change then if it was the case. Um, of course, local government in Iceland is... Um, well, here in the city area, we tend to think about local government in the terms of the big city, basically city and urban uh, development and issues like that. But the truth is that we have around well, a little less than 70 municipalities in Iceland. They're actually decreasing by the by every week now. <laughs> because Merging of, with each yeah, other. Yeah, 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 they're being merged. So it's going to be closer to 60 now very soon. Um but still, the the differences between politics and in some of the smaller municipalities, and then in the big city, it's it's huge. So, in a way, we could when we're talking about local government, people say, "Well, do you think about the local politics?" I would like to ask, "Well, which local politics are you talking about? Are we talking about the party politics we have in the city, which is resembles um, parliamentary and the na- national uh, politics much more, mm-hmm. or are you talking about the local politics, which are mostly concentrated on very specific local issues, um, very often have very little to do with national politics?" Mm-hmm. Um, because these are very different worlds. Um, so what was happening during the weekend, for example, was that there were leaders being chosen in the Independence Party in the largest municipalities. So we're looking at, you know, large politics, big stakes, you know, a lot of money, a lot of services, complicated um, compl- complicated issues. And then we then we have all the rest of the municipalities that are, they are not... Um, playing in this big league, you could say. Mm. And maybe, to a certain extent, they are more in tune, the, the discussions happening there are more in tune with what really matters to people in their daily lives. Yes. The things about the collecting the rubbish and how well, good the school is and all that sort of stuff. I actually think we talk about a lot of that. Talk a lot about how to collect rubbish in, in the city of Reykjavik, and you know, right now, kindergarten and and you know, these things are the most important. So, I think I think mostly we are talking about the same things. They're just on bigger scale. Mm. But there is actually another issue that we haven't, um, that hasn't been, um, would say, in a limelight. We did talk about it during the um, national elections in the fall, and that is the participation of people of foreign origin. In local government, and we actually have um, very, very few people coming that have been that were born abroad or have parents who were born abroad. Um, so I and I think, based on that, the number of uh, people who have or who have or originated from somewhere else than Iceland um, is con- increasing constantly, and at some point. We're going to have to integrate these people into our local government. You cannot have, um, even though you have small municipalities, maybe 500 people, 1,000 people, but in some areas, these small municipalities have up to half of their citizens who were born somewhere else, who are second generation, and none of them are, are in the local government. You know, So it, it's, it's, it's something that... Um, very soon we're going to have to tackle, you know, how do we get these people into our, um, to, how do we get them to come forward and say, yes, I would like to 
be a mm. part of local government. We have been some somewhat successful in the city of Reykjavik, but that it's it's very very rare to find people, um, especially some of them. Usually, if they are, they're usually from the Nordic um, countries. Mm. We are rapidly running out of time, but I wanted to talk about eligibility um, because you still, to this day, you have to be a citizen to vote in Althingi elections, but local government elections, you do not have to be. No. Uh, I believe it's... It used to be five years you had to live in Iceland. Now it's three, is that right? Yes, yes. um, I have to admit, I don't remember exactly the number of years, but they changed it. But just we have a brand new um, law of elections which were um, just came into act in the first of January. So, and yes, there is a. You don't have to live here as long as you had to, and you don't have to be an Icelandic citizen mm. to be able to. So basically, if you live here longer than a couple of years, you do, you can actually participate in this. It's it's possible, um, and encouraged. Yes, and mm. it is encouraged. But of course, the problem is how do you encourage it? Because one of the issues, if if you are integrating people who are coming from a different type of uh, cultural um, cultural you know context, um, how are you going to do that? Are you going to do it say like, oh, this is the way we do politics, and you're going to have to come and do the do it the way we do it, or are we going to say, well, please bring your your ideas and your culture into this, and we'll change ours. Because I have a feeling that at the moment we're basically saying, well, you should assimilate. And um, and I, I'm not so sure that um, those who are sort of trying to get people to work with them, they are not off, they're not always thinking about how can we change um, to make these people work with us. They are thinking, how can we change them to work with us? Mm. Interesting point. Uh, and a good point to uh, to end on, I think. Um, but yes, so people that have been living here for three years less, I think, for Nordic citizens even, can vote in May and and yep. encourage to do so. Yeah. On the fourteenth. And that is in all municipalities of Iceland. Yes. Great. Okay. Um, as I say, we are out of time, but the week in Iceland will be back with you next Monday, the twenty eighth of March, on roof.is forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook through the Roof app and your preferred podcast platform. That just leaves me to thank my guest today, Eva Marin Linsdottir. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. And also Lydia Gretisdottir for running the studio. We finished today's programme in celebration of the arrival of the Golden Plover, Iceland's most loved and powerful symbol of springtime, with the folk song Loan e Kormin, here sung quite beautifully by Hafdis Hult. Bye for now. Ég sofi of mikið og vinni